your word to Acts chapter 14. And while you're, while you're getting there, let me just take an opportunity to encourage us about how we listen to the word of God. This morning we're going to encounter a story where two men are going to do a very unwise looking thing and put themselves in harm's way for the for the purpose of speaking truth to the people of God. So they're going to they they think it's it's worth worth risking their lives in order to communicate some things that are so important for these folks to hear so that they can continue in the faith. That's the kind of value that Paul and Barnabas placed on the preaching of God's word. And so this is, this is routine for us, right? We get together here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we go through the activities of gathering. Um, I hope what you have right now is in your hand something to write with. I hope you have an outline. I hope you plan on revisiting that outline. Uh, and in one way, you know, even though I'm one of the more vocal opposers to electronic activity in this world, although I'm plenty busy with it. I'm a, I'm a giant hypocrite in that category, if you're curious. Uh, but the internet has trained us for, for Sunday morning messages. It has. You're invited to like things, right, on the internet. Like, so you have to actually pay attention to it enough to know whether you like it or not, right? You just don't like, you don't press the like button without actually knowing what it is. So you're, you're reading something today. I'm, I'm going to invite you to, to like stuff, you know, things are going to get said. This is how I read books. I read books. I write in the margins. You know, if I find something that really does something, it just brings me to a new level of insight. I I write in the margin. Good. Excellent. Helpful. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm talking back to the book. Talk back to the notes today, right? Like stick something, put a star next to something that stood out for you. Uh, if you're in an internet, internet reader, there's always that little comment section at the bottom of an article, a news item, a blog. There's a comment section. Well, you, you write comments. That's why there's a little bit of white space in your notes today. So you can write a comment and you take those comments with you and you go to your small group this week and you, you share comments that God's put in your heart to share. That's a little space at the bottom of the message for you to interact and speak and bring questions and say, you know, I don't know if I got that or, or what exactly does that mean? Or this is what I thought when that was said. So this is going to prepare you for uh, your coming meetings this week in our small groups. Uh, and, and one more thing, I, I, I realize that, that the foyer becomes a space during messages for Folks, if you've got children and they begin to get fussy, we want you to be comfortable, come in and out uh, as you need to do that. But, but can you do this? We actually, we've changed some formatting. Folks can't get in the conference room anymore. So I know foyer is going to become a, a gathering point. Uh, when you gather out there, we pipe the message out there. And we put it up on the screen out there. Um, so please serve the people that are around you while they're there. Please don't talk to them while the message is going on. If you got, if you want to fellowship and hang out, you can come early. You can stay late. You can go home with each other. But men are about to risk their lives today to communicate God's word to others. It must be important, and it is important. And this is a unique time for us. So if you need to be in the foyer because somebody's fussing, um, go ahead and do that quietly, and and please stay engaged with the word. All right, Acts chapter 14, verse 19. We're coming to the end of the first ever missionary journey, at least what's considered that in Scripture. Uh, This began in Acts chapter 13. You remember the meeting in Antioch. They were gathered together in Antioch, prophets and teachers, and it had a list of them. The Spirit moved them, and off goes Paul and Barnabas into the frontier of church planting. And today they're going to run their circuit. They're going to come back to Antioch. And there's, there's something to learn from, from their lessons here. Verse 19. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did I kill it? How are we doing? There we go. I'm still alive. Thank you. That was heart monitor. Sorry. Um, verse 19. Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. Two different Antiochs in this passage, right? One's in Pisidia, one's in Syria. Where... They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Lord, you have recorded these specific events with these details, many left out, these you saw as necessary for us and for the church in this age to receive life and strength and hope. And so, Father, give to us all that we need. Spirit of God, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to spend my time in the first four verses there, but let me just make a quick statement here that when we run the circuit of Paul and Barnabas having been sent out to plant churches, there, there is something that I, I don't want us to, to run past. This church in Antioch, right, which was made up of people who had fled from Jerusalem, brought the gospel to Antioch. They've grown, they've become a mature church they have been led by the Spirit to send others to go and plant churches in other locations and to raise up the gospel and to send it into all the earth. That's the Great Commission. But it was the project of a church in Antioch that did that. And what screams out again as evidence for that is when they have run their course, they come back to the church in Antioch and give a report. They gather the church together and they give a report. Now, I don't know exactly what the format of this felt like. I don't know. Maybe it was sort of like a business meeting. You know, they were gathering people together to, to come and hear all that God had done. And I, I just, I would wonder in today's busy, different lifestyle age, would anybody have come to that meeting? And these guys have been sent out. Incredible things have happened. They've come back to tell the church the good news and and what kind of gathering did they get? You know, was it half the church showed up? A third? I mean, people got a lot going on. They were busy, I'm sure. Young, old, married. Who showed up for that meeting? Well, you know, I, I hope the church gets a sense that in the Bible, the church owns the mission of the church. There's just no such thing as an idea that churches like ours gather all over this country and people fill the chairs, and then some other form of human being stands in a pulpit, and a few people are spread out throughout that. They, they own this stuff in some weird way. Somehow God's weirded them out. And they've got this vision for taking the gospel all over the place, and, and living, and, and creating structures, and spreading the gospel. Listen, Everybody in the church ought to be one of those weirdos. Everybody ought to be. So when the church sends Paul and Barnabas, listen, it wasn't just the other prophets and teachers in Antioch who sent Paul and Barnabas. It wasn't just the really, really spiritual men in Antioch who got together, got a burden, said, let's send these men at cost. Let's, let's raise up support, send these men, support them. It's been a couple of years that they were gone. And just these really serious Bible reading made room for God in unusual ways. People sent them 
So when they came back, they got together with that small little group of men who prayed for them. No. When they came back, they got together with the church because the church sent them. Every last one of them sent them. So whatever enterprises of the gospel the church creates... I'm not saying everybody goes on those trips. I'm not saying everybody is involved in exactly the same way, but it is, this is what the church is. We exist in this time frame to pronounce the glory of God and fill the earth with the knowledge of who he is. That's why we're here. And we invent ways to do that. We plant churches on the North shore. We invent ways of reaching out into the community. We, we raise up ministries on two lanes campus, whatever it is that we're doing. They sent Paul and Barnabas. Every one of them sent Paul and Barnabas. So I hope you're longing to embrace what God is doing. That the the news of the church isn't stuff like, that's not my news. That might be Keith's news or somebody else. That's not my news. This is your news. You have sent the gospel. Which, by the way, please get a chance to interact with Miss Denise Adamack. Wave everybody, Denise, so they know that you're here. Uh, Denise got to spend some time with Dean this week for some board meetings here in town. We actually had the board meeting here in town, so we didn't go to Mexico. That was kind of different for Pete and I. But Denise is here through tomorrow, so she got a chance to come today, so tell her hello. But she would be an example, right? We've sent folks. We have sent them. It's not a few guys up here who have sent them. We have sent them. The church has sent them. And, and, they, and this is what happens at the end. They come back to the church to tell this is what God has done. This is what you have partnered with in the gospel. Right? But let me, let me move us back earlier into this passage. Verse 19 through 23 has Paul and Barnabas going to teach some life lessons to us. These are things that I hope we see in scripture. You will see them only if you take the time to chew on scripture. If you rush through because you just got to get to the end of the chapter and close your Bible and get on to life, you will miss these kinds of things, but they're here in this chapter. So these, these are the churches that Paul plants really in the region of Galatia. So later on, when you're reading Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, it's this gathering of churches, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. This is the part of the world where That takes place. And there's some great lessons to learn here. The first one I want us to pay attention to is the message Paul and Barnabas brought back to the folks in Lystra that you enter the kingdom through tribulations. And and I want to hit on a drum that I've beat on a little bit before and I just feel the need to continue to beat on it. Uh, We live in a day and an age where we need to develop an adequate theology of difficulty. We, we don't do well as, pe- as people today facing difficulty. This, this generation that we're a part of doesn't do well with encountering setbacks and hard stuff and life not going the way we hoped that it would go. Years ago, even, even if you weren't a believer, I think generations before us did a better job of facing difficulty, of being able to manage life isn't what I expected it to be. But we don't do well with that. And it, it really undercuts the things that God wants to do in and through us. Paul Tripp says this, it's a bit embarrassing to admit, but I have a low tolerance for difficulty. <laughs> we probably have a group confession here this morning. Uh, I confess that I'm a project-oriented person. I tend to have a specific agenda for each day. I awake knowing exactly what I want to accomplish and what a successful day will look like. I don't want to have to deal with interruptions or obstacles. I want the people, circumstances, and locations to willingly submit to my sovereignty and participate in my plan. (laughs) All of this means that it's counterintuitive for me to view difficulty as something beneficial. It's counterintuitive for us to to experience difficulty and to label that as something good. I don't even want to talk about this morning that God is up to stuff in our difficulty. I think that's that's true. It's a good message. That's where he kind of is going with that. I I just want to locate difficulty as it's okay. It's okay if things are difficult. You're not out of bounds. Something isn't wrong. 
you haven't done something wrong necessarily if things are difficult. I, I think there's a mentality in us. I don't know theologic. I do have a suspicion where some of it theologically comes from. But there's a mentality in us that if things have become difficult, then that is an indicator of disorder. If difficulty pops up in my life, it's because something is wrong. Something's gone wrong. I've done something wrong. You know, that's kind of a, an American investor mentality. You know, if you, if you make a good investment, you get a good return. Guess what happens if you get a bad return? You did what? You made a bad investment, right? That's how we kind of label these things. You can look at your life and begin to try and interpret your life out of a similar lens. And, and I, I think, although I think this is not as influential as it once was, but the remnants of its ideas remain. Years ago, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've seen trends come and go in the body of Christ. A, a trend that is still around, it's just not as popular as it used to be, is the health, wealth, prosperity type teaching in the body of Christ. That teaching was built on the wrong premise that I just stated. It taught that if you encounter difficulty, it's because of some source of disorder. So if there's sickness in your body, setbacks in your life, a lack of uh, defined favor in your experiences, then it's, it's more than likely because of either unbelief or sin. You are doing something wrong. You are depositing the wrong stuff. Therefore, you're getting the stuff you don't like, which makes you believe that if I'll just put in the right stuff, then I can, I can fine-tune life everywhere. I just put in faith, and all of a sudden, I get health. You know, I stop sinning in an area, and all of a sudden, everything just becomes wired up just right. You know, and I've been banging on this drum lately about man-centeredness and God-centeredness a little bit because I want us to see that in Scripture. That's a very man-centered idea. I just want to know at what point did the God of the universe become the responding agent? We drive things, and he waits for us to get it all done. I mean, you read the Bible. Is that really the God you read about in the Bible? Now, listen, that's flattering for us because that really does make me the mover and shaker of all things that exist in life. Now, I, I love that idea until I've tried it for a couple of weeks. I think I'm, I'm ready to give on that, up on that pretty fast. Until I have sat under the burden of the idea that it's me, my faith, my ability to live at a certain level, my ability to be in agreement with God on all the ways in which I can think of being in agreement with God, that causes everything in my life to be either good or bad. How many of you guys really want to sign up for that at the end of the service? The only way you want to do that is that you don't read the Bible and let it tell you about man, and you don't read the Bible and let it tell you about God. You listen to some teaching out there. But if I just read the Bible about man, I don't want man in charge of anything. Are you kidding me? I don't want God having to wait for man to do it all right so he can begin to be God. I, I don't want that idea, and I don't see it in the Bible. But we have some of that in us. And yet Paul and Barnabas go back to these new believers and it almost sounds, I mean, look in verse 22. He went back to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So we know in general, what Paul and Barnabas went back to do was to strengthen and encourage. Specifically, what they said was to make them aware that it's going to be through tribulations that you enter the kingdom. That's how it's going to happen. Now listen, let me tell you how important this is. Because remember when I said earlier, they go back, put their life on the line here. If you follow the story, which we will in just a, a second here, they go back to cities where they were terribly mistreated. Stoned, threatened, persecuted. To tell them this. I don't know who talked who into what. Paul talking Barnabas into this, Barnabas talking Paul into this. But we need to go back. And tell them this. Tell them what? Well, they need to be encouraged and strengthened. I'm sure they said many things to them. But the one thing that gets highlighted here, they need to remember that you enter the kingdom through tribulations. You've got to know that. Right? That word tribulations 
comes from a couple of words, but it's got some real color to it. It means to crush, one of the words from which it comes. To crush or press, compress or squeeze, to break. From which they get the word tribulation. It's translated sometimes trouble. So you are going to enter through trouble. You're going to enter the kingdom through trouble. Be careful where you go with that concept. This is, this is not a teaching that somehow your entrance into the kingdom, your being accepted in the kingdom has to do with your degree of suffering. There are some religions that teach that. Uh, if you grew up Catholic, you were around some of that. There's an element of penance that incorporates ideas like that. All right, well, why don't we interpret that passage to mean that? That you actually enter the kingdom. Your way into the kingdom is, is based on you experiencing a certain level and type of tribulation. Right? Kneel on rice. Do some things that are hard. Mistreat yourself. There's teaching like that. People live their, their lives that way. All right, this is why you would not interpret that that way. Because the, if you stuck that idea into the New Testament, and, and this is the New Testament where a living organism, the entire organism would turn on that idea and eat it. Because it is anti-grace. It is anti the character of God. It is anti how anyone comes into the kingdom of God. We come into the kingdom of God by the grace of God. And by the mercy of God. And when we come in, we come fully in. There's no such idea that Jesus Christ went to the cross to get you 90% there. And now you just need to get the rest of the way there. It's just 10%. I mean, it's not a lot. I mean, he did a lot. I mean, come on. He got you most of the way there, but, but through tribulation, through your own, now you're, su- he suffered, now you suffer, kneel on rice, make it hard. Now you do the rest and you get in. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. And Jesus Christ declared it is finished. It was because he did the hundred percent of the work and got us all the way there. When your eyes open in new birth, you are living in the kingdom of God as its citizen, completely accepted. So that's not how we would interpret this passage. We would interpret it the face value of men who just got stoned. Right? Not in the 60s sense, but in the biblical sense. Right? Right, these guys just got beat up town after town after town. They're going back to the cities where these Christians now live to explain to them, you are going to experience trouble as you enter the kingdom. As you live your life for the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And as you do that, trouble is going to accompany you, right? If we visited this one, you know, first season episodes, right? First season of the journey of missions comes back to two year season. And here's some of the episodes in that I would call episode in Acts chapter 13, the attack at Antioch in Pisidia, right? Remember they preached in Antioch, the crowd turns on them. Stirs up people against them, poisons people against them, persecutes them, mistreats them, runs them out of town. Right, that's, that's one of the episodes. We tune in a little bit later. The next episode is in Acts 14, the Iconium encounter. They go and they preach in Iconium again. And the same thing takes place. Opposition rises up. Poisoning people. Discoloring what's being said saying things that probably sound close to the truth. These men have said things like this. Do you know the scriptures say this? Do you know how much these men are distorting what God has said? And the last thing in the world these guys want to be having people think is somehow they've distorted the truth of God and that's accusations are being said and opposition gets raised up. That's what's happening as they're fulfilling this. They encountered opposition, poisoning, undermining, sowing of distrust, accusations of mishandling the scriptures, hostility, mistreatment, and stoning. That's a lot of disorder. So does that mean these difficulties indicate they're doing something wrong? Paul and Barnabas were doing it wrong. The church that sent them was doing it wrong. The people praying for them were doing it wrong. The message they were presenting was doing it wrong. The way they were saying it, they were saying it wrong. Right? I mean, listen, I, I, I'm careful about this. I hope we sound careful on Sunday morning. And I, I, don't, I don't encourage you to just pull your personality out like six shooters and blow people's heads off with the gospel. 
the gospel needs to not get polluted by some, how obnoxious some of us are at being helpful. But when people pick up stones and want to stone these guys, I, I don't walk away concluding, wow, that Paul, he was hard to listen to. <laughs> that dude was obnoxious. He's up in your face and, and I want to pick up stones and kill him. Uh, when we learned a little bit last week about why that is. I won't go back through that again. But if you read other episodes in the book of Acts, there's the stoning of Stephen episode. Remember that one? There's the scattering of the fledgling church in Jerusalem. These new believers, thousands of them, have just come to faith. And all of a sudden, they're just squirted out of Jerusalem all over the place. That doesn't sound like a good thing. The death of James, one of the most important leaders in the New Testament. We don't get too far into this gospel enterprise, and he's dead. And later on, we're going to read in the book of Acts, Paul becomes the significant figure in the New Testament, and he is under house arrest in Rome, taken off the playing field, if you will. Right? These, these are, how do you interpret these things? Are these things going bad because these guys are doing something wrong? Or because they don't have enough faith? Or because there must be sin in their life? Or because the church didn't do well? How do we interpret this stuff? Well, I think we need a, a wise, biblically informed doctrine of difficulty. Do you have a doctrine of difficulty that informs how you explain difficulty when it comes into your life? Because it's, it's going to come. And what I, I want to remind us is to not get knocked over when it comes. Not have our feet swept out from underneath us when difficulty comes. To not ask the wrong questions when difficulty comes. Right, 2 Timothy 3.1 says this. But understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Do you get that? Understand this. Know it. Own it. It needs to make sense to us. That's what Paul says to Timothy. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. the, The New Testament says in numerous places, do not be surprised by the fiery trials that come among you and upon you as though something strange were happening. Listen, the element of surprise always in war has been a, a strategic desire. People want to have that element. The writers of the New Testament, the God who loves us, wants to protect us from being surprised. Because surprises, they, they tilt our faith a certain way. It's like one thing to have our faith ready. You know, I'm I'm reading the Bible. I'm informed by scripture. And here comes life. This is, what, this is what truth does to my faith. It postures me like this. Okay, I'm ready. Differently than I'm, I'm sort of just, I'm, on, I'm kind of on my heels anyway. I'm not, I'm not in the word. I'm not filled with truth. And here comes life. And I don't even see it coming. It's going to knock me off my feet. I think that was so important that Paul and Barnabas said, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to the churches that we've planted and the young believers that have been raised up. And we've got to prepare them that you enter the kingdom through trouble. Otherwise, they're going to be knocked over, caught off guard. Question for personal application here. Does for you, think for a second here with me. Travel through this thought for a second. Does difficulty for you equal disorder? When you bump into difficulty in your life, do you equate that with there's disorder somewhere in my walk, in other people, in some location? Somebody's done something wrong because if they hadn't done something wrong, there wouldn't be this disorder, right? When the things that you felt called to by God become difficult, unfruitful, painful, a struggle, a surprise, you begin to interpret your situation as I must be doing something wrong. Can I just put one point of balance in today? The Bible does correct us because sometimes we are doing something wrong, right? Remember us hanging out in the prophets a couple of weeks ago? Right, we hung out in Jeremiah a month ago. Those guys are clearly standing in your face and saying you're doing this wrong. But just because the Bible says that doesn't mean that you apply that everywhere all the time. Because grace messes all that up. 
God constantly is stepping into an, an, a disobedient, hostile, sinful situation with grace. And you just can't explain it, but just to say, wow, God doesn't have to have me do everything right all the time for him to operate in my life. So it's not always this formula. That you do something wrong, you get difficulty. Your disorder creates difficulty. Difficulty comes from other addresses and other locations, right? Uh, in your own life, when sanctification feels difficult, right? Your transformation, you're growing in freedom. You're growing in maturity. Your ability to take on issues that have sort of colored your personality your whole life. Kind of the way you are. Not the easy issues that you read about that happen to be somebody else's issues, but the ones that you can't seem to just get off of you. It just sticks to you no matter what you do. Right? When you face that difficulty, how, how do you interpret that? What's informing that moment? Galatians 5 verse 17 is informing that moment. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desire of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Every day that you draw breath for the rest of your life, as long as you were in this fallen world, inside of a fallen body, this statement is true. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. You ever get up? Wanting to do something different than what you've been doing? Wanting to have a different attitude than the one you've been having? Wanting to stop that action that you've been trapped in? And it's difficult. How do you interpret that difficult? Well, this isn't the only verse that addresses it, but it is important. There's an opposition in you, in this fallen world. It's there to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That's what you're encountering trouble. Romans 6 verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, to make you. That's what sin is up to in your life. It's there to make you do something. It's not taking a vote. It's not asking if you'd like this. It's not willing to negotiate. It won't back off. It's there to make you. It's there to take you by force. And according to this, oh, it's got a way to do it. It does it through what you want. I wish it would do it through the things I hate. Don't you? Sin comes to you in the categories of everything that makes you throw up. Just, I hate that. And sin comes and says, well, I'm here to tempt you today. With everything that you hate. Wouldn't that be a great day? It's like, I wouldn't even pay attention to that dude. Just turn my back, no interest, no thank you. But according to the Bible, the trouble comes because sin is there to make you do what it wants and it studies you in order to figure out where your passions are. And then it invests itself in that location and works to get you to want to do what it wants you to do. It's an insidious little nasty creature. It's trouble. And you and I enter the kingdom through that trouble. That's not going away. That's part of this world. When uh, marital oneness feels unnatural and not easy, right? Your unity, your friendship, your communication, your walking together, your, your coming to grips with the, the differences that the two of you have as different human beings, as being a man and a woman, being in different places in life, being in different places in your faith. All that stuff comes together in this marital oneness. Okay, when that happens and all of a sudden marriage feels really difficult, do you conclude you're out of bounds? You're out of God's will. You made a mistake marrying this person. How many people come share that thought? Let me just tell you, one, you're wasting your breath when you come tell me that. <laughs> Even if I tried to tell you that before you married that dude. <laughs> now it's too late. You're making a mistake. God's in this now. Quarter three strands. He's in it with you. But see, that's an interpretive thing we do. Why do we interpret that? Well, when everything was going great, we interpreted that that was God's will. But at the moment it became difficult, uh, isn't that the basis? My marriage is difficult. It, well, how do you interpret that? Well, then it must not be God's will because somewhere 
God doesn't want any difficulty in my life. Uh, You read that in the Bible? But it's in us, isn't it? Let enough things go bad and somehow we're questioning whether God's really in this with us or not. I don't know that God really wanted me to do this. Maybe I miss God along the way. Can you imagine this two-year trip on a missions trip? I don't think they came back to Antioch going, guys, we blew it. It was horrible. They beat us up. They cursed us. They spit at us. They stoned us. Paul probably came back in a wheelchair. I mean, can you imagine the stoning incident? We'll come back to that. Let's go back to marriage. It's not quite stoning. Tim Keller. If you haven't read Tim Keller's book, you need to. Tim says, I'm tired of listening to sentimental talks on marriage. At weddings and church and in Sunday school, much of what I've heard on the subject has as much depth as a Hallmark card. While marriage is many things, it is anything but sentimental. Marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears. Humbling defeats and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. Sometimes you fall into bed after a long day of trying to understand each other. That's about as nice of a spin as you can possibly put on most of our days, right? (laughs) I read that going, hmm, but that's a nice way of putting that. (laughs) Exhausted trying to understand. Okay, for those of us who don't speak that language, that sounds like, I don't get you. That's what it sounds like. That's what he's trying to say. Uh, You fall into bed, long day of trying to understand each other, and you can only sigh. This is all a profound mystery. (laughs) That's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, right? Marriage is a mystery. Coming to know and love your spouse is difficult and painful, yet rewarding and wondrous. Do you have a doctrine of difficult that informs your marriage so that when it truly does become difficult, you don't start asking all the wrong questions. Paul and Barnabas experienced difficulty in fulfilling the will of God in their lives. It's okay if your life is difficult. When parenting, all of our pursuit of obedience training and discipleship and correction and instruction and value molding and influencing our kids becomes complicated or at worst even disconnected. Does that mean your parenting is in disorder? Could. Is that the only thing that you're looking at when you go to interpret your parenting? Do you, do you factor in, you enter the kingdom through trouble? You think, I mean, listen, trouble's like spilling water on the ground. I mean, it's like, it's not as though it behaves and goes in one spot. Well, the, yeah, but it's trouble at work. It won't be trouble at home. Really? It's trouble. <laughs> it, it, you know, it doesn't have a territory. It's trouble. It goes wherever people are. I guess I could just say it that way. <laughs> you got people in your house? You got trouble. I mean, it's just a fact. <laughs> you got little people. I, I, I've, I've grown to love and appreciate the people who told me this when all my kids were little. They, it, was like, it was like a bumper sticker I never got exposed to. Keith, little people, little trouble. Big people, big trouble. <laughs> uh, all right, well, are, are we ready for that? And when we experience trouble in those categories, how do we interpret that? Because, again, this is a distortion of grace. If, if you think that order is completely created by you, well, then when you encounter difficulty, you're going to think disorder in me is the source of that. And that's just not biblical. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't reexamine your... If you're having marriage troubles, you should reexamine your marriage. If you're having parenting difficulties, you should reexamine your parenting. There's a difference between re-examining things and creating cause and effect relationships between them. If you do that, you're going to be asking God some really weird questions whenever trouble comes up. Trouble is in this world. 
And so we enter the kingdom through trouble. When outreach, evangelism efforts struggle to produce salvific responses, churches reaching out, it's establishing programs, it's reaching into people's worlds, it's figuring out ways to do that. Some of it's based in its culture, ways of things that are being said, and people aren't responding in salvation. Difficult. Does that mean the evangelism is wrong? The way in which evangelism was done was wrong? Because listen, if you interpret that that way, then you show up at the Antioch meeting when the team comes back to say all that God has done, and you hear these stories about, you know, we would preach, and I don't know, part of the crowd would say yes enthusiastically, and part of the crowd would begin to talk against us, mobilize people, stone us, reject what we had to say. Hmm. Really? That's the kind of response you got, Paul. Paul, you probably really weren't preaching correctly. I mean, is that where you go with that? Or is trouble in this world? You preach to people. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff in this world that affects whether they hear you or not. Besides just me being in control of what was said, how it was said. There's other factors in, in a world full of trouble. Right, when we look in the New Testament and you see them encountering trouble, you don't find a lot of unhealthy introspection going on. Just read through the book of Acts. There's trouble after trouble. People are dying. Key people are dying all over the place. They're having to flee. They come to the city. It's these triumphant, sent by God, great commission, go into the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. They show up in a town and they run to the next town. Does that sound like it was going right? But you never see them turn around and just become this really morbid, introspective group of people. They don't leave the town, run out of there, going, oh my, oh my gosh, we, we need a prayer meeting because we, we, I don't know what the heck we're doing and God's not with us and, and where, why isn't God? That, that's not what they sound like. There's trouble in this world. Derek Thomas says, Paul reported upon his return to the believers in Pisidia and Antioch, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Why is this so? The answer is that the closer you live to the king, the more likely you are to draw the enemy's fire. What Paul and Barnabas experienced were the trials that befall those who insist on living godly lives. Trials are, in some ways, a corroboration that we are on the Lord's pathway. Jesus warned of the gates of hell that would, be, that would open against the soldiers of Christ as they seek to extend the borders of the kingdom of God. If Jesus warned us that the kingdom does not advance except as we also experience the hostility of the kingdom of darkness, then not to experience the ravages of Satan's ire should be a matter of concern. The question we must always ask is the same. Are we experiencing peace and calm as we traverse through this world because we are insufficiently committed to living counterculturally? This is a principle we can't escape. Where you are taking steps of faith right now in your life, in the future, in the past, to bring the kingdom into this realm in your marriage, in, in your personal purity, decisions you're making, in your finances as you give and trust God, in your relationships, you will draw the enemy's fire. Do you remember, do you remember what Satan was after in Peter? Jesus warns Peter. Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. And then Jesus gives away what he's after when he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Right, when Satan comes to mess with you, he is after your faith. That's what he wants. And that's what makes sense in this passage here. Verse 22, they came back to strengthen the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith. Knowing that the difficulties that would accompany their lives 
would wear on their faith. It would threaten their faith. Now listen, if this isn't installed significantly enough in our lives, this, this is what we do. We get into living life. We start doing things that are in agreement with God and then difficulty comes and we ask questions that sound like, well, why, why is all this going wrong? Why? I mean, I tithe, I'm serving, I'm pouring into my kids. It's like we just, we create our resume as though if we do things right, then everything goes right. Listen, that's, a, that's an American investment model. In the kingdom of God, Paul and Barnabas were doing things right. They were in the middle of the will of God. And they had to explain why in the middle of the will of God, the gospel was preached in every setting that they had been in, they, they encountered severe opposition. So much so at one point that Paul is, is going to be stoned. And we read that in a second. So severely stoned that they dragged him out of the city like a dead body and left him for dead. This was not a few people who kind of threw a couple of stones at him. This was a stoning. The kind that they intend to end in death and they thought they had and they dragged him outside the city. I mean, I can, can you get your mind around what that must have been like? The rage, the out-of-controlness in this crowd to pick up stones as big as my hand, jagged, and to begin to hurl them, big ones, throw them at this man. What would you do? What, can you, I mean, just put yourself in that position. How do you, how do you stop? Stones are, from all angles are being thrown and hit you in your kneecap, in your elbow, in the back of your hand, off the side of your head, in your face. So that when you're done, you are a bloody mess. And he was right in the middle of the will of God. He was right in the middle of the will of God. Difficulty. Trouble. It's after that event. They go to Derb. And then they decide, we've got to go back. We've got to go back and tell the people in the towns that did this to us, that you enter the kingdom through trouble. I believe that was to prepare them so that they didn't get blown over. But what I love about Paul in this moment is his, his tenacity in this moment. You know, we read that verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, this is a man who, wow, seeks first the kingdom of God. I mean, you, he's taken outside of Lystra as a dead man his friends run out there to him, watching blood all over the ground, and, and to their surprise that he moves, he flinches, and they, th- they think he's dead too. <laughs> they take him back into Lystra. <laughs> Are you serious? Did you read that? You read it too fast. When the disciples, look at verse 20. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and entered the city. You know what city they're talking about? The one they just dragged him out of. This dude is tenacious, man. You just almost killed me. I don't know. They, you know, dragging him, stretcher, you know, over shoulders. Can you imagine you're one of the dudes and you just watch this guy come walking back in? <laughs> this guy is nuts. <laughs> He's back for more? And then they leave. They go down to Derb, they preach there, they stay there for a while, and then they get this really wise, attractive idea. Let's, let's go back. <laughs> now, if I could get a map, you could see, I don't have a map, but right here, uh, Mediterranean Sea, Antioch, where they start, they, they go to an island, they sail, and they pop up on land over here. They go north to the other Antioch, then they work their way back through uh, Iconium and Lystra, and then Derb's over here. Derb is over here, Antioch is over here. Derb is over here, Antioch, where they started, is right over here, about a week away. As a matter of fact, Tarsus, where, remember Saul of Tarsus? He wants a home-cooked meal. He can stop in Tarsus on his way to Antioch. There's a shortcut here. You don't have to go back that way. 
It'd be quicker. We'll be in Antioch in a week. We can go back and tell everybody what happened. It'll be awesome. And we'll stop in and my mom will cook us a meal in Tarsus on the way. No, no. Let's go back. <laughs> Let's go back and strengthen the believers that are there. Let's go back and minister to them further. Let's go back and make sure they know it is through trouble that you will enter the kingdom. This man is tenacious, right? And later on, this is the beginning of Paul's journey. So later on, 2 Corinthians 11, this is Paul reporting about his life. He speaks of these other servants that are boasting about how great they are for the kingdom of God. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure all the time wondering, am I in the will of God? No. Seemingly with a doctrine of difficulty that says you can have a resume that looks like all that and still be in the hand of God fulfilling the purpose of God in your life. Because he understood you enter the kingdom through trouble. He had a doctrine that informed him on that. Go back to chapter 14 there. Paul has an opportunity to take a shortcut home, back to the sending church. But instead... He's going to go back through these churches and he's going to teach us something. He's going to teach us something very important. He's going to teach us something that I hope we value as much as he valued because he put his life on the line to go back and impart these things to the church. He went back to minister to the church, to strengthen them, to encourage them so that their faith would continue to the end. He went back to appoint elders in every location. He went back to impart to them that you enter the kingdom through trouble. Those are, those are some pretty important things right there. When a man goes back to face possible death, those are some pretty important things. Those are some pretty important things then and now. I put lesson number 2A beyond Paul's tenacity is the value that Paul placed on strengthening the souls of the disciples. I know that, you know, the church in general has a, an appropriate economy for reaching the lost in general. Many, many folks don't, but there's a lot of people in the church who, who understand if we're going to reach the lost, <clears throat> it could involve danger, risk, put your life on the line, reach the lost because that's important. They face judgment. They face wandering through this world. They face a life of calamity followed by a judgment that's eternal. We reach the lost. It's a priority to reach the lost. And that's right. And I hope every one of us value that and love that. But you do realize why Paul put his life on the line going back through these cities. He put his life on the line for those who were already Christians. He went back not for the sake of the lost, although I'm sure he shared the gospel with everybody who was dead in their trespasses and sin that he could. He went back to strengthen the disciples, the ones who already belong to Christ, because he knew it was important that their faith make it to the end. There, there is, there's an economy in us that has set values in scripture like one versus the other. It's wrong. If we are going to reach into the world of the lost and we're going to plant a church or send a missionary or somehow the gospel is going to go to somebody who doesn't know the gospel, man, some of us will fork over money, spend time, go on trips, get involved. 
But if we're going to strengthen the believers, if we're going to encourage the disciples, some people, listen, this, this is just a fact. This is a fact. If I took an offering this morning to plant a church where the gospels never reached anybody before, there would be some people who would give for the first time this year. For the first time, you'd reach into your wallet and say, ah, finally. Well, you're not going to really say that, but that's what you're saying. Finally, something I value is being done. Listen, can you learn a lesson from Galatia here? This man, Paul and Barnabas, these men put their lives on the line for the sake of those who were already believers so that they could be strengthened and encouraged and have leaders in their lives who would take their faith to the end. You don't need a special project. You just look around you. There are people worth dying for in this room with you right here. There are people worth laying your life down, taking up the risk of laying your life. Listen, it's risky. I'm inspired by the risk in these men's lives. But listen, for some of us, the risk of writing a check when, you know, I don't know what the balance is going to be like at the end. That's a risky thing to do. Well, it's nothing like this risk. But I don't know if the church is willing to take that risk. For the sake of God's own giving. There's lots of stuff. Listen, I know it's, and you guys be honest with me. It feels more attractive the second we highlight something that's about reaching the lost. It feels that way. Right? People get excited. They go on Tulane's campus. Yes, lost people. Okay, hey, everybody over here, we're going to care for those people. All right, if we have to. <laughs> Nothing like putting your life on the line for that, but that's what he does. He puts, they put their lives on the line for the sake of God's people. Wow, what a highlight. What a valuable, necessary thing to do. Listen, if it's not necessary, Paul, take the shortcut, dude. Go through Tarsus, get a good meal, bunk in, get your wounds cleaned up. Go on back to Antioch. Unless it's vitally important that the church learn to strengthen, protect the faith of those who are believers right now. And that's why you appoint elders. That's why you go back and teach. That's why the church does what it does for those reasons. John Stott, speaking of these elements, says some form of pastoral oversight, doubtless adapted to local needs, is regarded as indispensable to the welfare of the church. We noticed that it was both local and plural, local in that the elders were chosen from within the congregation, not imposed from without, and plural in that the familiar modern pattern of one pastor, one church was simply unknown. Instead, there was a pastoral team. So before leaving the Galatian churches, Paul and Barnabas committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust with this threefold provision, apostolic instruction, pastoral oversight, and divine faithfulness, and they would be safe. Listen, the enemy is after your faith. He's after your faith today. He'll be after your faith this week. As long as you're drawing breath in this world, you are not safe. You will draw his fire and you will enter the kingdom through difficulty. And in God's economy, three things are on in this little passage here that are designed to provide safety to us as believers. Apostolic teaching, which is what we have in scripture, the teaching of the word of God, it needs to be affecting our lives. It's protecting us from the darts and fiery irritations of the enemy. Pastoral oversight. Right? Are, are, you, are you attached to this church in such a way that the leadership of pastors touches your life? If you're just barely here, barely connected. You, listen, you need to get somewhere where pastoral function is touching your world. If you're, if you're in this church and whatever direction, teachings, emphasis, ministry opportunities, serving, missions, 
if you just, you just detach yourself from that, well, then you're in a church with a pastor, but you're not being affected by pastoral ministry. And you're not safe. I, don't, I can't say it any other way. And I don't say that because I, I think me or any of the other guys are walking on water around here. I just say it because I see it in Scripture, and I'm pretty sure these guys weren't walking on water. It had been less than a year, year and a half, two years, when these guys are being raised up and put in positions to lead the church. I'm pretty sure they fumbled stuff all over the place. They were people. But yet they were a means of God's safety and protection for the church. And then there's the thing that we're all banking on, the providential care of God. We commend you to God. They didn't just say, hey, you don't, you don't need elders, and, uh, and we don't need to teach you anything. We just commend you to God. Go ahead, go your way. No, we, we teach you carefully. We give you leadership, and we commend you to God. We do all three. And that's where the safety comes in. Eric, where's Eric? Go ahead and come up, buddy. Let me just get us to think for just a moment. Pray together and we'll be dismissed in just a minute. What kind of what kind of kingdom tenacity is in you right now? If you had a like a KT factor, you know, if there's some way to plug you into a USB port and we could dial up a program and check, check the KT factor. You know, it's like a two, nine. What's the KT factor? Kingdom tenacity factor in your life that causes you to stand in Derb, still bruised, broken, and have a decision. Do I go this way? Do I go this way? Do I, do I take the short way, the easy way, the avoid the difficult way? Or do I, do I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Because I know it's going to be trouble if I go that way. But I remember that the Bible teaches that you enter the kingdom through trouble. Listen, we all probably could have started in the same spot. I want to avoid trouble at all costs. But what do I do when the Bible says I enter the kingdom through trouble? Well, now I can't avoid it. As a matter of fact, the Bible helps me to understand it's kind of supposed to be in the settings that are important. If you're going to have a a kingdom advancing marriage... All you married guys here, it's going to take some tenacity for it to happen because it's going to be difficult. If you're going to spend time in kingdom advancing relationships that involve everything from great times to horrible times, great friendships to betrayals, Thoughtfulness followed by forgetfulness. You mean the world to me, followed by, I'm sorry, I I haven't been in touch. And if those settings are going to become kingdom advancing settings, it will take tenacity. It will take you standing in Durban going, okay, do I go the difficult way right now or do I take the shortcut? take my losses, take my bumps and my bruises and go? Or do I seek first the kingdom of God? Stay in this thing. Stay in the fight. Believe God. Inform my soul. There's trouble that way, but I'm called to seek first the kingdom of God. And the Bible tells me I'm going to enter the kingdom through trouble. Please don't, don't make the mistake of signing on for a trouble-free life. It's not God's will for you. Or me, as much as I've been trying to talk him into it for the 30 plus years I've been saved. He just doesn't seem to be getting it. (laughs) And then he says stuff like this. You enter the kingdom through trouble. Wherever it is this morning. can, Can you stare trouble in the face with a different piece of information? I know this is hard. I know it's difficult and there's probably a shortcut in an easier way, but that's not what I'm about. And for reasons that are redemptive later on in the journey, you're going to discover things. It's interesting. I'll just let you in on a little future. 
scripture we're going to read in Acts chapter 16. It's a little phrase. No one notices it. Just, just kind of there, right? Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derb and Lystra. Right? Lystra is where he got stoned. A disciple was there named Timothy. Where did he come from? Well, more than likely, he came from when Paul was in Lystra, getting his brains beat in and then going back again to strengthen people's faith so that one day there would be a man named Timothy who would be found on the New Testament pages strengthening churches and advancing the kingdom. Where did that come from? It came because the apostle Paul didn't take a shortcut. It came because he went back to make disciples in Lystra, even if it cost me my life. Listen, there's elements of the kingdom. They're in your home. They're in your parenting. They're, they're in your finances today. Some of you are here today and the hardest thing for you to do is to, to give for the advancement of the kingdom. And it seems safer not to. It makes more sense not to. The numbers don't add up right. Or some of you are here in a marriage, you're insulating your heart because you're preparing to kind of let it go its own way. It's just unraveling. It's falling apart. It's, it's, It's painful to try and put it back together. It's vulnerable. It's difficult. And it's tempting just to take the shortcut. But God stands and says, but you enter the kingdom in those places. Through trouble. Trouble doesn't mean I'm not with you. It might actually be the very thing confirming that you are right where I have you. So here's what I want us to do. I want to pray for folks this morning. I want to pray for you this way. And I'm going to ask only you to stand up in just a second. I'm not going to bring you up here. But we're going to pray for you to be strengthened and encouraged. If you're here and you find yourself in a place right now where you are tempted to take a shortcut. As a matter of fact, I thought the Lord told me that there'd be somebody here. If you use that word, it's going to, it's going to buzz their brain. You have been tempted to take a shortcut to avoid trouble. And this morning, God's trying to tell you, I'm, I'm not calling you to avoid trouble. I'm here to remind you I'm with you in the trouble. If you need to be prayed for this morning, to be able to go through trouble rather than avoid it. I just want to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to bring you up here, but we're going to stand and we're going to pray for you that you can be strengthened, persevere, that God would renew your faith in such a way that you will continue, whether it looks difficult or easy, God will meet you with his grace, provide you with an ability to make a decision whether to take the shortcut or to go back into a place of trouble. I know each of you guys are in different places and maybe you're still seated right now and and you need to stand. I, I just want to encourage you. I want, I want you to be strengthened.